The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Jason Powell declares the queen of the garden to be antique roses. Who could argue with old garden roses that exude excellent fragrance, shape, disease resistance, and low maintenance? We talk about how these fragrant flowering shrubs make a huge impact in your garden when pairing them with some surprise companion plantings. Jason and his wife, Shelly, partner with Jason's mom and dad to produce heirloom plants at their nursery, Petals from the Past. Their mission is to educate and grow tough plants for southern gardens. Jason earned a bachelor's degree in horticulture from Auburn University and a master's degree in horticulture from Texas A&M University. He is a proud member of the infamous Texas Rose Rustlers, where they scouted and rescued thousands of antique roses all over the southeast. Jason's insider scoop and look at the Peggy Martin Hurricane Katrina Rose survival story will amaze you. This is episode 74, Antique Roses, Queen of the Garden with Jason Powell. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Jason, what are antique roses? Craig, by strict definition, when we look at how these roses are classified, we look to the American Rose Society as kind of the authority, and they define an antique rose as any variety that belongs to a class of roses They were introduced prior to 1867. What's the big deal about 1867? That's the year the first modern hybrid tea rose was introduced. It sets a really nice, firm timeline for us. When we think of antique roses, we go with a little bit looser definition. We look for three characteristics that we find are always associated with antique or old garden or heritage roses. I know we use the terms interchangeably and all of them apply to the same category, but we look for three primary characteristics. Number one is fragrance. I don't know about you, but I'm sure you're like I am. If you go up to a rose and put your nose right in the middle of it and it's got fragrance, it brings its value up significantly in our mind. When we look back at the roses that our grandmothers and great-grandmothers would have grown, that's one of the characteristics that is associated with them, good fragrance. The second characteristic that we love that we find associated with antique and old garden roses also is the overall shape. If you were like I am, you know, I was introduced to roses through hybrid teas and what I remember from them were, of course, long stems, which resulted in an upright angular growth. And when we go back to pre-hybrid teas, we find roses that are as full as they are tall. Rather than being soldier-like, like modern hybrid teas, I consider them better described as fat and happy, full from the bottom to the top. The third characteristic that I think makes antique roses worth growing and kind of unique is the disease resistance. 
in this day and age, to be able to grow roses in our southern gardens where we have heat and humidity that have got resistance to black spot and powdery mildew, that makes them, to me, a category really, really worth considering. It's not that they're disease-proof. These old garden roses can still get a little bit of black spot, a little bit of powdery mildew. The difference is, how does that rose handle it? They, thankfully, have the ability to yellow the leaf, drop that leaf, and keep on growing and keep on blooming. To me, that helps us to better define what is an antique rose when we get away from just the strict, hard definition of pre-1867. Why should we grow antique roses? Biggest reason to grow antique roses is because they make such a big impact on a garden. Whether it's a climber or rambler that's dripping off the edge of a pergola or the side of your house, or whether it's a great big shrub that's centered right in the middle of your garden, when you can have what I consider the queen of the garden, you're going to get not only fragrance, you're going to get great shape, you're going to get a season-long performance that is going to add so much more than just a pretty flower to your landscape. I think you can really build your landscape as we have around these roses for certain. Can you give us an insight on different classes of roses? One of the neat things is if you have this broad category, this broad heading of antique rose, within that broad heading, you've got some really, really unique classes like the species class of roses, like the old China class of roses named for their country of origin. You've got the old garden teas that were also discovered in China. You've got the bourbons, and then you've got all of these great, great historic classes, each class having its own unique set of characteristics, certain fragrances that are associated with them, certain growth habits, certain bloom times, some of these that are spring blooming versus those that are repeat blooming. When you get those separated into those classes, within those classes, you have varieties. Varieties like Old Blush, that's a prime example of a great old China rose, the class it belongs to, and that is a great example of a phenomenal antique rose. That's probably, Craig, one of the oldest roses we grow, that Old Blush, and its introduction date goes back to the 1700s. It's considered one of the original stud chinas. If you've ever grown a rose that blooms more than once, Old Blush is likely a parent of that. I hear the term pass along and heritage and heirloom. Is there any difference between that and an antique rose? Those terms are often used in association with one another, but I do think there are differences. We run into people all the time who have had roses that have been in their family for one generation, two, three, four generations. Those are naturally considered pass-along plants because they've been passed along from one generation to the other. The unique ability of that rose to be able to be rooted from a stem cutting means that each one of those generations literally is carrying a living legacy from one family member to the other. And that, to me, is pretty exciting. And so when you and I are talking about this subject and pass along versus heritage, I would say definitely antique rose qualifies. The term can be used interchangeably with heritage plant. Both of those types of plants, whether it's a shrub or a rose, would be considered pass along. These are ones that you really want to make sure that it gets shared with another family member and passed on through from one generation to the other. Nowadays, Craig, you know better than anybody, the big movement in the nursery industry is really more branding and newer introductions. And I'm afraid losing some of these great Southern heirlooms that if we're not careful, they'll disappear. And to me, it brings pass along plants to the forefront, whether it's a vegetable, a perennial or a rose, it brings their importance to the forefront. 
Let's look back at the different rows of classes. Could you give us an example of a rose and that and tell us benefits of each one of those classes? Absolutely. When we were talking about that broad definition of antique rose and what kind of fits it, then we start breaking them into different classes. One of the neat things is each class has got its own unique set of characteristics. And if we break those out, I always like to start with the species class of roses because they're kind of the original roses that were introduced. They are native to the area that they're from. Typically, when we look at species class of roses, one of the best examples that I can think of is Lady Banks. I rarely talk to anybody that is not familiar with that rose. It came from Asia, was introduced to Charleston, South Carolina. That's kind of how it made its way here. In fact, called the Charleston Rose forever. This thing was introduced in 1824. It has been spread all over the U.S. where it's cold hardy. Exhibits the characteristics that are kind of unique to the species rose with the exception of one. Most of the species roses, if they were to have a motto, it would be wild by nature, right? These are the ones that you want to let ramble and run through your garden and that you don't try to keep under your thumb. I've never had a person tell me that they successfully imposed their will on a Lady Banks rose in the landscape. You know as well as I do, that rose looks the prettiest when it's left to its own devices. If you look at the species class of roses, which includes shrubs and climbers, You're going to find a class of roses that bloom typically in the spring only. It might be for six weeks or it might be for eight weeks. But you're going to find a class of roses with superior disease resistance. You can throw black spot powder, mildew, and rust at them, and they're just going to slough it off if they get it, and they're just going to keep on growing. For us, they are the wonderful class of roses that we can use on fence lines, pergolas, on large structures, or just to let them come up and umbrella over I've often have a customer or two that comes in and says, listen, I've got a neighbor that I get along great with, but we just need a little bit of a visual barrier. And I remind them that these old species roses could encompass a house next door if we're not careful. Using these in the landscape, I think the species roses have a role to play. The next class we generally talk about are the China roses. And we made reference to those a little bit earlier. These are the roses that are literally native to China. They're selections of those that have been passed along from one generation to another. But when we look back at this class of roses, there were single petal Chinas in existence a thousand years before the birth of Christ. These are no newcomers. These guys have been around for a long time. The thing that we love about the China roses is a fruity fragrance. There's a really nice fruity aroma that you would associate with anybody in this class. They're also workhorses. These are the first roses to bloom in your garden in the spring. They're the last ones to finish. We will always have China roses in bloom here at Christmas, which makes them especially nice. Craig, there's shrub roses. Typically, the shrub roses in this class are going to be three feet to six feet tall. They're going to be equally wide. There are also climbers in this class. Within this group, great disease resistance. I would say probably the class that more gardeners get excited about when they come into our nursery than any other are the old garden teas. Old garden teas are the grandmother of our modern hybrid teas. What you get with this rose, which was a natural cross between old blush, the China rose, and Rosa gigantea, is we get these large pointed buds, these big, big buds that as they open have layer after layer after layer of petal. In fact, when you look at the flowers of an old garden tea like Mrs. B.R. Cant or Maman Cochet or Duchesse de Brabant is you'll recognize the pointed bud that we associate with the modern hybrid tea. Between 1830s and 1860s, this was the class that everybody wanted to have. What you would find with these, just like with all of the antique roses, are more muted colors, right? Pinks, 
pale yellows, definitely uh, more pastels. We don't see bright, bright oranges and really bright, vivid colors until we get into modern roses. When you see these old garden roses, you're always going to see more pastel colors. The old garden teas pick up not only their repeat flowering characteristic from their china parent, heavy spring, heavy fall, and intermittent summer bloom, they also have the similar size, three to five to six feet tall and that wide. One of the things that rose breeders really did not care that much for was when this rose is in bloom, that great big bud just nods over and looks at you and kind of opens up and invites you to put your nose in there and smell it. Modern roses, the rose breeders were looking for longer stems and roses that would hold their heads up in the vase. Those old garden teas probably, they certainly are the class that I think more gardeners get excited about when they come to the nursery. They like to see those flowers. They know that they can cut that and take it inside. They really appreciate the disease resistance they get to. Another class that I think is fairly unique are the Ragosa roses. Any of your listeners that have traveled, particularly to the Northeast, they're going to have seen these Ragosa roses along the eastern coast where they're used oftentimes as barriers or hedges because they can stand up to salt air. The Ragosa roses are native to sand dunes. These guys are native to sand dunes in Japan. They not only have one of the most fragrant blooms that we find in the nursery, but they produce a hip, the rose hip, which was, of course, the original reason these things were grown was for that vitamin C content. They produce a brilliant hip that can be used in rose hip tea or rose hip jam. But the foliage of the ragosas is very wrinkled. And the thorns on these stems, Craig, oh my Lord, I like to say they have thorns on top of thorns. But extremely vigorous, extremely drought tolerant. When you look at the uses that you can have for this particular class in the landscape, it could be as a hedge. It could be as an individual specimen plant. The height potential on these, it's anywhere from five to eight feet and that much in width as well. Finally, one other class I would mention would be the bourbon class. That was the name of the island that they were actually found on. They would remind you very much of the old garden tea, but with the even sweeter fragrance, large double flowers. I would say the most popular variety of this class that we grow would be Souvenir de la Malmaison. That particular rose was named for Empress Josephine's garden. Even though it's an 1850s introduction, it would not have appeared in her garden, but it is so spectacular that it was given that honor as a name. And I kind of can relate to, to Empress Josephine, the lady who would have a Napoleon stop a war so that they could collect cuttings of some of those roses. I can appreciate her uh, tenacity in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've named all these different classes. So how do you go about actually choosing the best rose for your garden? Wonderful question, Craig, because this is where it can get confusing. I had thought about this when we were talking earlier. At the height of the most volume of roses that we were growing in our nursery at one time, we had about 175 varieties of antique roses. That is just completely overwhelming. That just is an indicator of how rose crazy we got. We're now more down to around 125 roses. When it comes to utilizing and finding out which rose would be the most appropriate for your landscape on any given day, if we're talking to a gardener that's coming into the nursery, 99% of the time, they just know that they want to have roses in their garden and we have to get into a little bit of detective work. We're often asking more questions. You want to grow roses in your garden. The first thing we want to know is, do you want a shrub or do you want a climber? It's a really, really good division to start with because if they're thinking climber, they're going to have a structure. It really narrows the area down because we can use a structure that a climber that would be appropriate for a pergola that has 20 to 30 feet worth of growth. Or they may just want a small rose pillar, you know, something eight feet tall that only needs eight to 10 foot 
climber to go on it. When we look at how do you pick the right rows for your garden, we usually start with that first division. Do you want a shrub versus a climber? Then we start thinking about height. Just like if we were choosing a shrub for their foundation planting, if you want to grow a rose in your garden, how tall can it be ultimately? How wide can it be? Do you want it to grow in containers? We grow a lot of the early polyantha roses that they're only going to be two to three feet tall and about that wide. They make a spectacular display in a container, 14 inches in diameter or larger. So for us, that is a really, really easy distinction to make. All right, if we can narrow it down to shrub versus climber, how much size you've got, that really narrows it down because each class has got the potential to be anywhere from 8 to 10 feet tall to 4 to 6 feet. That, to me, is a little bit of detective work that each gardener can do on their own or can talk to a person that's excited about these roses so that they can help them choose that. One important characteristic I'm sure your listeners are already aware of, roses, we really want to look for areas in the landscape where you've got six hours of sunlight or more. That's where we oftentimes, we get into the shrub versus climber, we get into the height that you're going to want. Then we really need to, before we go any further, we need to make sure that you've got six hours of sunlight to be sure that you're going to get the best performance out of your roses. There are more shade tolerant roses. And of course, spring bloomers are often finished blooming by the time the leaves really come out on the trees. But for further performance on your repeat bloomers, you definitely want to have at least six hours. First, you're matching your rose to your space, bush type or climber, in the five hours of sun. That is exactly right. And I can give you a prime example, Greg. I'll never forget, we had a, a wonderful gardener when we first got open. Appropriately, her name is Flora. And she's continued to shop with us over the last 28 years. She came in and she picked out a Ladybanks rose because it was in bloom. And you know, it was thornless. It's got those beautiful yellow blooms. Flora picked it up and I met her about halfway down the aisle. And I said, Flora, let me tell you a little bit about that rose. And she said, Jason, you don't have to tell me a thing about it. She said, this is exactly what I was looking for. She said, just make a ticket and let's ring it up and I'm going to go put it in the garden. And I said, all right, Flora is a once a month visitor to the nursery and she's going to buy whatever is in bloom because she is color motivated like so many of us. Month went by, checked with her, Flora, how's that rose doing? Doing great, fitting in, no problem. Second month, no problem. Third month, no problem. But when fall rolled around, she came in, had her head hung down a little bit. And I said, Flora, what is wrong? And she said, Jason, you were going to warn me about how fast that rose grew, weren't you? And I said, yes, I was. She said, I didn't want to hear it because my husband and I had celebrated an anniversary and he had built for her six foot redwood trellis. She put that right at the front door of their house. She said the first month that rose was blooming because blooming when she put it in the ground, she said it took off and by the second month it had covered well above the six feet of that cedar trellis. And she said second month, she said it was all the way up. She was starting to nail it on the door. She said third month, she said her whole family was visiting. Late one night, she heard a thud. She said that Rose had knocked down the door, come up the steps and eaten her grandchildren. And so <laughs> I'll never, ever forget that story because it reminds me that, yes, we got to be really, really careful in what your expectations are because you want to be able to enjoy this Rose in your landscape and it not work you to death. And I think too often you've seen them, Craig, like I have, these great big ramblers are put into places where it's almost impossible to control. Like we were talking about with that Rose, you really want it to have room to grow. 
What is the difference between a rambler and a climber? That's a question we get on a regular basis. If you look that one up, you'll find a number of different answers. What we've found is typically the growth habit that you associate with a climber is the easiest way to distinguish it from the growth habit you associate with a rambler. A rambler, thankfully, has a growth habit that if you were to not lift up those canes, it would literally ramble along the top of the ground. It doesn't have the strong vigor and upward growth habit and thick stem that we associate with a climber. I think a wonderful example of a climber that many of your listeners will know is New Dawn. I think New Dawn, which is considered a more modern rose, it's a 1930 introduction. It has appeared on the cover, I think, of every garden magazine from Pensacola, Florida Gardens, all the way into the New England area. It can grow in so many different areas, but when it produces new canes and new growth, they shoot out of there like fishing pole canes. They shoot straight up into the sky. Then you have to tie them down in order to get them to follow along your structure. Whereas with a rambler, it's a wonderful rose that can reach 15, 20 plus feet in length, depending on the variety you choose. When you lift those canes up, you can literally wrap them and bend them. If you take them up on top of a pergola or a gazebo or a large structure like that, they literally will lay across the top of it without so many of those wild hairs that we associate with climbers. We really love to use ramblers, typically on large structures that we don't want to have to climb up over too often. We try to use the climbers on structures that are going to be a little bit more manageable that we can get to. We typically associate climbers with spring blooming only. There are exceptions, whereas with ramblers, you've got more repeat blooming opportunities as well. In my mind, as you were describing that, I'm thinking the rambler's more of a ground cover type rose that you could actually train and go up onto a pergola or arbor or whatever. And then a climber's spiky has all these shoots going everywhere. What you're describing is exactly right. Couldn't have put it better. If you don't put that rambler and train it and go up and over your structure, it's just going to ramble along the ground. And that brings up another point that I think is so important to make is whether it's a climber or a rambler, when you're working with these roses, one of the things that we've discovered early on is that when these roses are growing, they naturally want to grow more to the sky. What we've found is that if you allow them to do that, they typically will bloom only on that terminal bud, top buds. Any opportunity that you have to be able to turn those canes horizontally rather than training them vertically is going to result in a much better show. It's so interesting to me that with these canes, if you go straight up with that cane, you're going to get the top bud and maybe two or three others that develop flower buds. You take that same cane and bend it horizontally to run it along the length of a fence. Everywhere there's a leaf attached to that stem and the axle of that leaf, as you know, there's a bud. And those buds, instead of being vegetative as they were when they were growing vertically, they become flower buds. You get so much more bloom when you can direct that growth horizontally rather than vertically. What about care and maintenance on the roses? When I think roses, there's a lot of care to them, a lot of pruning, a lot of spraying, a lot of just things to do to a rose. Let's go into that some. What I'm hearing from you is you were like I was. The first rose I was introduced to was a hybrid tea. In fact, my first job at a nursery was when I was in 10th grade. I think this must be the norm at every nursery. If you're the new guy or the new girl, they put you on rose transplanting duty because they figure if you can survive that experience, then you're going to be sticking around and working with them for the long run. I remember my first introduction being those biodegradable pots, bare root roses that we were transplanting. They were all hybrid teas, three to five large thick canes. 
What I observed after that was every seven to 10 days, those roses had to be sprayed with a fungicide. Then they had to be pruned to an outward facing bud in order to develop that growth. What I learned was that hybrid tea roses are high maintenance. When I began to learn a little bit more about antique and old garden roses, I was quite thrilled to find out that we could actually grow roses that had really beneficial attributes but weren't as high maintenance. My first introduction, like you, was, oh my gosh, these roses have all got to be in their own separate flower bed. They've got to have their own maintenance program. And you've got to know your fungicides and insecticides and be on top of that every seven to 10 days just to keep black spot and powdery mildew and rust off of them. When we get into the care and maintenance and we contrast these old garden roses that our grandmothers grew, like night and day. When you think about it, I think it makes perfectly good sense. Pre-1867, there literally were no chemical companies in existence at that time. There were no irrigation systems. What these roses were able to survive and handle was whatever was thrown at them. Thank goodness for our benefit, after modern roses were introduced in the 1867, our old garden roses were forgotten about, but they were planted at old home sites. They were planted at cemeteries, thankfully, where they survived and they thrived without care and maintenance. In other words, these roses, thankfully, stuck around long enough that once we got over our love affair with the hybrid tea and there was a bit of a renaissance movement where people returned and rediscovered these roses, we found them surviving and thriving, even though they were in areas where they were getting little to no care. In a modern landscape, from a care maintenance standpoint, what we typically look at is we like to think about planting. When we start with this rose, 99% of the roses that you're going to get nowadays are going to be container grown. When you take it out of that black plastic pot in my soil here, which is red clay and rock, we like to start with digging a hole that's the same depth as the pot that it's being grown in, one and a half to two times as wide, because we know our lateral root growth is what's going to be the most important. That soil that comes out of there, we like to mix a one-to-one ratio of good compost. We just use composted cow manure to blend in there with it and to help loosen that soil. Once we've planted it, we tamp that soil and compost mixture back in and around it, water it in. Then we're off to the races. Greg, we plant probably more in the fall, October, November, December than any other time. You, of course, can plant October, November, December, January, February, which is National Rose Month, right into March and into middle of April. Regardless of when you've planted your rose, that's the approach we like to take. And once we've planted it, we think about now nutritional needs. The neat thing about these roses is that they're not sensitive to the pH of the soil. They can grow in as acidic a soil as four or as alkaline as a pH of eight. The biggest thing we do have to be careful of is drainage. You know as well as I do, roses do not like to have wet feet for long periods of time. With only just a couple of exceptions, we need to make sure that soil has good drainage. Like we talked about earlier, six hours of sunlight. Once we've done that, the thing we've learned is that roses love to eat. One of the big things that we like to do is begin a nutrition program, a fertilization program. For us, we start about the 15th of March. We feed our roses every five weeks, alternating between an organic rose food and a conventional rose food. We do that throughout the growing season. And our last application of fertilizer here is usually around the 1st of October, end of September. Our soil just is so deficient in nutrients that we have to supply some form of that. So we get a good start with the compost and then we add those nutrients afterward. During your first couple of years in particular, the way that we grow our roses, which is by rooting them from stem cuttings, you're going to get some uneven growth. If it's a shrub, you'll get maybe more growth to the right or to the left. So one of the things that we like to do to maintain kind of a curved dome shape or an overall full from the bottom to the top shape is we try to make our pruning cuts after each flush of bloom. 
we reduced the height that first year by no more than a third with each cut that we're making. The next year, after it's been in the ground for a full season, we like to go in there in mid to late February here, and we'll reduce all of the growth it made the previous season by one half. With those repeat flowering shrubs, we're doing that in a curved dome shape. Pruning is going to be, like fertilization, an important part of the life of your rose in the garden. One thing we've learned is roses don't make a permanent network of canes, and they really respond to pruning just as vigorously as they do fertilization stimulates more new growth. And that, of course, on new blooms means that we're going to get better performance and more growth. If you're going to grow these old garden roses, thankfully, we don't have to worry about spray program because they have excellent resistance to black spot and powdery mildew. But we do need to be prepared to proper planting, pruning, and fertilizing during the growing season. Those are our three biggest things that we're on the lookout for. These old garden roses, they're actually growing on their own root stock. They're not grafted to another stock. That is a really, really important point to make because you know that when you have a grafted or budded rose on something like Fortuniana or Dr. Huey, as many modern roses are grafted, they grow extremely fast and you've got two different roses that are growing there together as one. When we go back to the old garden roses to maintain those genetics, we like to root them from stem cuttings. That means we get a genetically identical plant to the original one that we were growing. When we do that, we also, though, are going to have a rose that takes two to three years to reach its full potential rather than one year. You need just a little bit of patience on shrub roses when it comes to old garden roses that are own root propagated. Anything else on the maintenance that we need to talk about? As long as we know these are low maintenance roses, but it doesn't mean that we plant them and walk away. They really benefit from pruning. They benefit from fertilization. Those to me are the biggest characteristics. We should mention we choose the climber to fit the space that we're using. When you're attaching your climber to a structure, one thing I think is important to always remember is use something that's a stretchable material, whether it's a stretch tie or old nylons that are being thrown out or anything that will stretch as that rose is growing, because as they grow in length, they're going to grow in girth. Just want to stay away from wires or twist stems or things like that that might eventually girdle the stem. You tie it kind of loosely, right? You don't really cinch down on it. That's exactly right. You want to tie it so that it'll stay in place, but leave a little bit of room so that it can expand and grow and get nice and thick. What are some of your favorite roses that you like? When you start looking at roses that we've grown over the last 28 years, one rose sticks out to me from a shrub standpoint as just an all-star. It's one of the old garden teas called Mrs. B.R. Camp. Mrs. B.R. Kent can easily, in the landscape, be a five to six foot rose by five to six feet in height. It has more of a dark pink flower bud. And as it opens up, it's a little bit lighter in the middle. And it has this wonderful, cool, dry, tea leaf-like fragrance. It's one of those, I put my nose in the middle of that flower and close my eyes and I'm just transported to a whole different area. It's full. There are flowers that are basically on the ground all the way up to the top. When you look at it, it's not just a rose for the flower, which you can cut and put into short vases. It's a bush. Its overall shape is attractive as much as the flower is attractive. And it's just a wonderful repeat bloomer. When it comes to shrub, I would say for a large shrub, Mrs. B.R. Kant's my absolute favorite. We also grow one that we began our nursery with back in 1994. It's a thornless compact polyantha. I believe introduction date on this one is 1881. It's a variety called Marie Pavier. Marie Pavier, in addition to being thornless, is real compact. It's a pale, pale pink, like other polyanthus, small individual blooms that occur in clusters. 
when they bloom, they'll have sometimes 11 to 15 individual blooms in this cluster. The fragrance is heavenly. It is absolutely brilliant. It's only three feet tall by three feet wide, so it's great in the landscape as an individual specimen. You can use it as a low hedge. You can use it in a container. Either way, it makes a pretty phenomenal show. No two ways about it. Any other favorites? Those are my two favorites that fall into the large shrub category, the small shrub category. If you're going to go to a climber, I would say there's a rambler that I really, really have as my favorite would be a variety called Leontine Gervai. Leontine Gervais is a rambler. I think it's probably one of my favorites because we moved to a house when my daughter was in the third grade. She was there through high school, and it was one of these homes where you have very little room between your driveway and that front window. Her front window faced the drive. Just about six inches of space planted that rose in there. Because it's a rambler, it was easy to train was able to pin three canes up and over her window so that when she would look out her window, she could see that rose and see that thing blooming or raise her window up if she wanted to and smell those blossoms. Of course, one thing I had to be careful of as she became a teenager and turned into just a beautiful young lady, I started thinking about planting barberry underneath that window (laughs) as well. Just keep everybody in good shape. That rose is one of my favorites, Craig, because it comes out with an apricot bud and then opens to a double-flowered pink. It is a spring bloomer. One of the things about the spring bloomers is when they're in bloom, there's no repeat bloomer that I could ever put beside a spring bloomer at its peak that it could outperform. They put every bit of energy that they've got into that one big massive bloom. It just literally stops traffic. Yeah, that's always a hard choice is do you want it over the long haul or do you want that big burst? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. For that one, for the big burst, that's my absolute favorite, uh, showstopper. How do we set roses off with companion plantings? How do we bring out the best in, in our old garden rose? If you want to get the most out of these roses, to me, the first thing you have to do is, all right, you've decided, okay, in my garden, I want to have roses, but I want you to think from a design standpoint, got to get away from the thought that roses have to be in their own garden. And with modern habitat roses, that's often how they're cultivated because it's easier to grow. They're planted in raised beds and kind of separate from one another, two to three feet apart from each other, kind of like soldiers going off to battle. When we start looking at antique and old garden roses, I want for you to forget that it's a rose and think of it strictly as a fragrant flowering shrub. You're looking at your landscape. You're looking for those areas in your landscape where you have six hours or more of sunlight. Once you find that, then I want you to think of these roses, like I do, as the queen of the garden. They can be your focal point. They can be used as low hedges. They can be used as a backdrop on a fence. Once you've placed your roses, you now have room in that garden for other plants, perennials, shrubs, herbs, the whole nine yards. Because these roses have the characteristics that we discussed at the beginning of the program, they're fragrant, they've got great shape, they look good by themselves or in and amongst other flowers. The third characteristic is really the most important here. Because of their disease resistance, you can mix them in with these perennials, these herbs, and these shrubs without having to worry about them because they don't care who their neighbor is. They're going to bloom in there and they don't have to have all of that separation. They just need room to be able to grow. I will tell you my favorite, hands down, number one perennial group to group with my old garden roses are salvias. Part of that is because salvias and roses have similar light requirements. They both like and enjoy as much sunlight as I can give them. 
when you get into the world of salvias, as you know, you get all of the benefits. You get blooms that are going to be attractive and important to bees, to butterflies, and to hummingbirds. With many of the repeat flowering salvias, I think of one in particular that's at the top of my list. It's a salvia farinacea or mealycup sage. It's a variety called Henry Duelberg. It's a beautiful blue spike that reaches about three feet in height. It can be a backdrop for a low-growing rose, or it can be in the foreground of a large flowering rose. This particular salvia blooms spring. I cut it after it finishes blooming. It blooms summer. I cut it after it finishes blooming, and it blooms fall. I like all members of the Rudbeckia genus, all those black-eyed Susans. They have a similar light requirement and are drought tolerant. They produce a daisy-shaped bloom versus the spike bloom of the salvia. Then in the foreground, I've always loved an old-fashioned heliotrope that we grow here. It just kind of spills over the edge, and it's another one of those long-blooming perennials. When we blend that together, one of the things that we're trying to do is let the rose be the queen of the show when it's in bloom. But when it's in between sequences of bloom, if it's a repeat bloomer, it can kind of fade into the background and these other plants step up to the foreground. Salvias make a big show. For us, salvias, rudbeckia, the heliotrope, those are all wonderful mid-spring to fall blooming perennials. They overlap with the roses. When the roses are dormant, I also like to have things going on in those beds. When we're in the wintertime and the rose is devoid of foliage and you're just seeing the overall shape, we love to have our spring flowering bulbs. I would like to have one of every member of the Narcissus genus. I want all the daffodils. I'd like to have all the jonquils, all of those guys. Grow another one, Craig, I know you're familiar with. It's an old-fashioned bulb called Snowflakes. The botanical name is Lacogum. The foliage of those guys is up in December. It's giving some interest. We're getting those beautiful bell-shaped blooms in January right on into February. In February, our garden kind of comes alive after the bulbs are really hitting their peak. We start seeing the germination of all of our reseeding annuals like larkspur, poppies, cornflower, the old-fashioned spring bachelor's buck. Those things, to me, are all good companion plants that help to give the garden interest while either the rose is in bloom and overlap with it or can provide the show before the rose even gets started and gets out of the gate. Oh, that sounds like a lot of opportunities there. I'm thinking about the old garden roses. They're found on old home sites. Families are passing them down. It's important that we know how to root a garden rose. Is there certain tricks or certain things that we need to be aware of when we do that? There are. Sometimes you might come upon one of these things and you only get one shot at it. I was very fortunate to have an opportunity to participate while I was a graduate student at Texas A&M with a group that this was part of what they did they would go out to old home sites, to old cemeteries, where they had heard or seen roses that were growing kind of on their own. It was so fun and so educational. We called ourselves the Texas Rose Rustlers. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a rough group? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Don't want to mess with those guys. No, you do not mess with those <laughs> rose rustlers, for sure. One of the things that we would do is we would take all of our equipment. For us, you got your clippers, you've got a bucket, you've got your fresh water, so that when you are going out to collect that rose, you can collect your cuttings and you can remove them from the mother plant. 
put them into that water so that you can keep them hydrated and keep them rolling. I'll never forget one of my favorite trips with a group of rose wrestlers. We went over to Jackson, Mississippi, went to an old cemetery there, and we were joined and accompanied by one of your previous guests, Felder Rushing, that you've had on the podcast. That's always going to be a lively (laughs) event. And he takes us to a cemetery. The last person that had been buried there was probably 1860s, early 1870s. It was early in the morning, and it was the most quiet, peaceful atmosphere. You're looking out, and it's a little bit of fog that's hanging on early that morning. There's old tombstones. Some of these old garden roses just literally leaning over. It's just peaceful. In fact, the only sound you can hear is just the clip, clip, clipping these cuttings and and dropping them into buckets. And it was quiet like that until Felder said, Jason. And I said, yes. And he said, I want you to look around and just tell me what you see. And so I described for him what I've just described for you and for your listeners, this beautiful, peaceful scene. And he said, I want you to remember one thing about this. If dead people can grow old garden roses, you can grow old garden roses. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought that advice I have taken with me from that point on, there we were making cuttings of these brilliant, brilliant roses. What we have found over the last 28 years is that when you're looking for a good cutting, anything thicker than a pencil in width is just too big. You want something that's going to be pencil in size or slightly smaller. We have found cutting length when we're sticking those cuttings, four to six inches in length is a good, good length to work with. We have found the roses are going to root or not, whether you use a rooting hormone or not. What we have found is that the speed at which they root and the distribution of those roots is far better when we use a rooting hormone. We're usually just using a powdered rooting hormone like Rutone. Once we've removed that cutting from the mother plant, the healthier the mother plant is, of course, the better chances we're going to have of rooting this cutting. We have also found that fall is a really nice time to take these cuttings when it's cooled off in October or November, for example. Sometimes you don't have that option. You're going to be out there in July or August, and this is your one shot. Take it when you can. If we can go with that size cutting and get the appropriate time and use a rooting hormone, what we've found is that once you get these cuttings back to where you're going to stick them, we like to remove any foliage that's going to be underneath the soil. When we're sticking that four to six inch cutting into a pot, we'll reuse a lot of our four inch pots. We're planting and sticking these cuttings into either potting soil, sand. We use perlite. Works as a great, great media to root stem cuttings in also. We'll take the base of that. We'll remove any leaf that's going to be on that six-inch cutting. We'd love to have three inches below the soil and three inches above the soil. Then we're going to remove any leaf that might be under the soil when we stick it into that media. We don't look for full sun. We don't need for these cuttings to be out in full blazing light. What we want to create is as much of a greenhouse atmosphere as we can. We want to be able to keep that soil moist and the environment around the cutting humid. I can remember my grandmother in central Florida having one of the air conditioning wall unit. Those things will always drip. It was a sandy soil that she had. She would stick her cuttings right there at the base where that could maintain that moisture. She would turn used milk jugs over on top of them. Made quite a scene. When we're rooting, we want to try to mimic a greenhouse as much as possible, not in direct sun. The time frame varies depending on the variety. Some of those rose cuttings are going to be rooting in within four to six weeks. Some of them will take a longer period. If we reuse some of our little plastic pots we've got laying around, the neat thing is is you can not only root it, you can let it finish growing out in that container until you're ready to plant it that next season. But generally, you're looking at planting that rose in the ground within nine months to a year of of taking the cutting. Take it right from the four inch all the way to the final planting? Exactly. 
we actually transplant it up to a one gallon size. That's what we grow most of ours in. I think that's a little bit better because a bigger plant is going to help you get off to a little quicker start in the landscape. Anything else we should know on taking a cutting? Rooting on the cutting, I think that's the biggest points that we like to make. It's not complicated procedure. It's what's going to ensure that you have a genetically identical plant to the one that you were looking at or that was grown by a family member. I've heard you tell a story about the Hurricane Katrina Rose. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, I'd be glad to. I would say the Hurricane Katrina Rose, if we're not asked at least two to three times per week about that rose, I'm always surprised. One of the roses that I had the great opportunity to care for in my major professor's landscape while I was at Texas A&M was a variety of rose that was a rambler. It had no name at the time, but it had been shared with Dr. Welch by a gardener that is a past president of the New Orleans Old Garden Rose Society, and her name is Peggy Martin. She had shared that rose with him, and he had used it on a little area outside a farmhouse that he had. He had built a fence around the air conditioning unit. I knew that rose as the air conditioning rose because my job was to keep that rose from climbing over and swallowing that air conditioning unit because it's a very fast rambler, thankfully a thornless rose. Peggy Martin had shared that rose. It was a friend of Dr. Welch's. He was telling me about that rose. It had been in her family for at least three to four generations. And, and not only in New Orleans, but in Medier, in Baton Rouge, all around that area, that rose was well known because of Peggy Martin's family. She had shared it with him. I got the opportunity to garden with it and loved it. Finished graduate school, and we're here in Jemison with the nursery now when Hurricane Katrina comes through. Peggy Martin and her husband, they evacuated, and unfortunately, Peggy lost everything, home and all, in that storm. When they were able to come back to their home site some four to six months later, there was literally no foundation, no driveway, no really markings of anything that had been there previously to their family home, except two plants that were actually coming up. And this is six months after the storm. There was a crinum lily, old-fashioned milk and wine lily that was coming back up. Mm -hmm. I've been told those will survive a nuclear war, so we never <laughs> have to worry about the milk and wine lily. There was also a sprout of this rambling rose that had been on a fence. That was what was remarkable. Dr. Welch, in talking with Peggy, said, listen, we need to propagate that rose and tell the story about that rose, what it has survived. And it had been under 15-plus feet of all kinds of water. With Dr. Welch's suggestion, Peggy let him name that rose. All the time it had been circulated around, it had never been given a name. Dr. Welch had sent it around the U.S. and it had never been introduced as a variety. It was just a chance seedling, as far as we know, part of the Wachuriana family of roses. Dr. Welch was able to name that rose for her. He asked ourselves and nursery called Chambly's Roses, another wonderful rose nursery called the Antique Rose Emporium, to begin to grow and propagate this to make it available and to distribute it around the U.S. For each rose that we sold, we were able to donate a dollar of purchase of each of those roses to go back to building green spaces in New Orleans, Louisiana. Since that rose was introduced in that form, we have heard from so many gardeners. It has been written about on numerous occasions. I would say probably one of the most impactful was an article that was written by Southern Living Magazine. Man, when it came out, Craig, it was phenomenal, the response. People wanted to be a part of that story. One of the things that's been interesting to us is we've shipped that rose to Miami, Florida. We've shipped it to Seattle, Washington. We've shipped it to Connected in New York. Everywhere we hear back from these gardeners how well it grows and how well it performs. And I've not known of another plant, maybe outside of that crown lily, that can grow in that many diverse landscapes. Yeah, that's a lot of diversity there. 
But it comes with a warning label too, Craig. Keep in mind, that is a massive rambler. And this is definitely one of those roses that if you're not careful, you plant it beside your house and it will encompass the neighbor's house. It'll eat small children. (laughs) It never looks back. And it is a really, really spectacular climber. And thornless, a little bit of it goes a long way. Sounds like it should have been named Kudzu Rose. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I agree. The blooms, to give you an idea, they look like a rose called the fairy. Small individual blooms in clusters, but a darker pink. For your listeners that are familiar with the fairy rose, it looks just like that, but a darker pink in clusters. You've got a fantastic nursery there in Jemison, Alabama called Petals from the Past. Could you tell us a little bit about your operations there? I'd be glad to. When we begin Petals from the Past, we started the business, best time you can start any business right out of school when you're so young and dumb that you don't know what to be afraid of. I started it with what I had learned from my dad who worked with the extension service educational approach. I always have enjoyed the educational approach to any task. One of the things that I wanted to do with our nursery was to approach gardening from an educational standpoint. Over the last 28 years, we've gone about achieving that goal through two primary efforts. First, we plant everything that we grow into a garden setting. I would like for you, if you have time to visit us here in Jemison, I would love for you to be able to walk through the gardens, look at what the plants look like as mature specimens. Look at what that Leontine Javai, that rose I was talking about earlier, looks like on the fence where it's been there now for 18 years versus having to decide based on what it looks like in this one-gallon pot. We try to use that philosophy by maintaining display gardens to be one way that we achieve an educational goals. Plant everything we grow in display gardens. Secondly, we host workshops and classes. We've built a 40 by 70 gambrel roof barn, heated and air conditioned, where we can hold workshops and classes on a number of different topics. We invite our visitors to come in and we host at least two different workshops and classes each month on a number of different topics. That's the second effort we make at achieving an educational goal. Our focus has always been on that educational goal. The types of plants that we grow with our name, Petals from the Past, began and continue with the southern heirlooms. We look for tough plants for southern gardens. That includes a lot of the plants that our grandmothers grew, not just roses, but perennials, heirloom shrubs, bulbs, reseeding annuals, vegetables. We also include a lot of root trees as well, both modern as well as as heirloom. We also try to incorporate as many modern varieties as we can as long as they've passed our test of neglect. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? I think that the palette of plants a lot of gardeners use could be expanded. One thing I would love for gardeners to do is to visit at least three different nurseries, if you have them available and in your area, to try to look for other options than just the standard traditional foundation planting. We're seeing an enormous amount of interest from gardeners in attracting pollinators to their garden. You can incorporate perennials in with your foundation planting. A lot of times I think that people feel very restricted. Think of a foundation planting that's just got to be shrubs that create a mustache around their home. I would love to see gardeners swing their flower beds out a great deal more, cut down on the amount of turf grass that you're having to mow, add more layers of interest to your landscape. Those are the landscapes when I see those in neighborhoods and in gardens where they've increased space that they've allowed for their flower beds. Even if it's just layers of shrubs, if they're coming out away from the house, it's just so much more interesting and more attractive. What garden myth would you like to bust? 
the one that I really want to make sure is that it is a good thing to put a Japanese beetle trap in your garden. And so <laughs> we hear far too often in discussions that a gardener for the first time in the month of June is discovering that Japanese beetles are coming to their garden. They are just feasting on everything that doesn't move out of the way. They were told by someone that they needed to put up a trap. You know as well as I do, Craig, these traps can produce that wonderful pheromone that attracts all the Japanese beetles. It doesn't matter how many traps you put up in your garden, you will get way more Japanese beetles than that trap can attract. If you're going to use the trap method, you want to get it out of your landscape and away from your garden. That's one I would definitely want to get out in front of. What's your earliest garden memory? There's two, and both of them were in the vegetable garden. My granddad on my mother's side, he was a Southern Baptist preacher, and he always had about three quarters of an acre to an acre vegetable garden. He and my grandmother maintained that vegetable garden. This guy was absolutely my number one hero. When we would visit him, he didn't live just down the road. They lived in central Florida. I was growing up in Auburn. It would only be around the holiday. As soon as I could get there, I would jump out of the car and I would follow my granddad wherever he went. One of the things that he taught me was the layout of that garden and what you can do by planting seed in a vegetable garden and watching that seed go from germination to production, learning about harvesting. He was not only a great gardener, but he was a wonderful chef in the kitchen. He showed me how you could bring these wonderful fresh vegetables into the house and use them at the table. I got that same lesson from my dad. My dad served as a fruit specialist for the state of Texas, then Georgia, and ultimately when we moved to Auburn for the state of Alabama. My dad's garden philosophy is if you can't eat it, don't grow it. My earliest memories were in the vegetable garden with my granddad or in the vegetable garden with my dad and seeing the development of these plants into what we were going to then enjoy eating right there standing in the garden or taking it into the kitchen. Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession? It seemed like every Saturday, all my buddies would be off doing this or that, but I had to stay home and work in the vegetable garden. I had pretty much determined when I finished high school, I was doing anything other than horticulture. <laughs> Two or three different majors, the first as a physical therapist. And then I did an internship where I inflicted pain on people for their own good. It was miserable. Nobody wanted to see you. They were not happy when you were working with them. thought, this is not any good. I looked and looked and looked. I read the whole book of possible majors that you could have at Auburn University. I finally decided, you know what? I'd always liked plants. I always enjoyed being around them. Not necessarily every Saturday in the vegetable garden. I knew that that was kind of an interest for me. So I decided to make an appointment and I met a professor that I admire and is another hero of mine named Harry Ponder. I told him the struggle I'd been having. What do you have to do to have a career in horticulture? He said, Jason, it's as simple as this. He said, you need to like plants and you need to like people. If you like both of those, you can have a career and do anything you want to in horticulture. I felt like he reached over and lifted like 50 bricks off of my shoulders. Let's just take a few classes and see how you like it. He was my favorite professor there at Auburn. He taught all of our plant materials courses. He never forgets a name or where you are or what you're doing. The way he presented it to me made it so simple. And as I began to study and found just so many opportunities and so many directions that you could go that I had been overlooking, it was right there in front of me all the time. When I finished at Auburn, there were 100 undergraduate students. There were about 50 of us that were boys, 50 girls. There were literally five jobs waiting for every single graduate. It was pretty amazing. It took me the roundabout way to come back to horticulture. What made you pursue it even more at Texas A&M? When I finished, mentioned those five jobs that were available for every single graduate. 
I looked at them and I had done three internships also in horticulture. One was a landscape design firm in Atlanta. One of them was with a chemical company. I had done an additional one that was just kind of a split landscape option. I thought all three of those were the direction I really wanted to go. But once I did the internship and I actually got my hands in, I found out that really wasn't what I necessarily wanted to do. I go to my professors and it's always so funny. You say, hey, look, I've got all these options. Can't make up my mind which of these. I don't know that that's the right route to go. They always have the solution. They say, well, why don't you just keep taking classes until you figure it out? Write a check for another semester and it will occur to you what you're supposed to be. So I decided to apply to graduate school and I had an opportunity to visit Texas A&M, which has a really strong horticulture program like Auburn does. I was just blown away at the opportunities that were there and the professors that I could have an opportunity to work with. I just jumped at that opportunity. And while I was working on my master's degree there, I was able to garden with Dr. Welch. And and Dr. Welch was another spectacular influence in my life. If you look at the books that he's written, they include titles such as Antique Roses for the South, The Southern Heirloom Garden, Perennial Garden Color. Here's a guy that was really gardening with the plants that we grow today, the plants that our grandmothers grew. As I gardened with him over the weekends, I would be in and amongst these wonderfully historically significant plants that were just performing. I fell in love with the whole experience. My hands and knees in that garden one day occurred to me. All the nurseries I was visiting, both in Alabama and in Texas at that time, seemed to be shifting more toward the modern plants and the branding that was beginning at that time in our industry. There was no movement back to these wonderful plants I feel like we need to be preserving as well as looking out for. The light bulb went off my head on my hands and knees in that garden. I'll never forget. I decided I wanted to come back home to Alabama and and start a nursery that could apply the techniques I'd learned from my dad with the extension service, the educational techniques, to apply that to the growing of old garden plants. Southern heirlooms that I was afraid we were losing. The best decision I made, hands down, was I was able to convince a young lady named Shelly, who was a graduate student at Texas A&M at the same time as me. I had absolutely fallen head over heels for her. I was able to convince her to marry me and move back home to Alabama with me and help me start this nursery. I've always laughed. She's a Texas native. Texas natives, they do believe the world was built around Texas. (laughs) To convince her to marry me and move to Alabama and start a nursery, I will say she is still looking for the oil that I promised would be on this property uh, somewhere for sure. (laughs) Shelly is no question the most knowledgeable plants person I've ever met. Many of her responsibilities, she goes all over looking for great plants that are at risk of being forgotten about. And my wife, Shelly, is the only person I know who can identify a plant at 55 miles per hour. Wow. What a talent. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I guess you wear out a lot of tires slamming on the brakes. Yes, we do. Absolutely. The neat thing about it, it doesn't matter whether we were in North Carolina, South Carolina, going all the way through Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, on into East Texas. We've never stopped at a house, knocked on the door and asked about a plant that was in their garden that we haven't walked away with armloads of seed or cuttings. My favorite part of the story, Southern gardeners, I have learned, like to share. They like to also share with you how that plant came to be. I don't know that there's a better icebreaker in any event that you go to than gardening because it crosses all barriers. Go into a group of people you've never met before, say, hey, I had the best tomato crop I've ever had. They're going to come to you in a flock to find out that variety. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of sometimes feel like the doctor. Everybody knows the doctor. They want to start asking (laughs) questions, plant questions of you. Yeah, they're always picking your brain, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And I enjoy it. Absolutely. (laughs) What's your most valuable garden mistake? This one's been made probably by a dozen people that I talked to in a week. 
I made the dumb mistake of planting spearmint in the garden rather than in a container. I did it in our herb garden. We have a display garden that features perennials with old garden roses. Then we have a display section that features herbs with old garden roses. I made the mistake of being overconfident that I could control this spearmint and keep it where I wanted it. 28 years later and still digging spearmint out of that. It's a great humbling reminder of not being overconfident in your garden acumen. (laughs) That's definitely at the top of my list. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have 12 months of interest. That to me is the most important part, I think, of my garden because I can walk out there any time of the year, thankfully, and there's going to be something of interest. It might not be a bloom. It might be a foliage or it might be a stem or it might be a seed head. Thankfully, I have 12 months of interest in my garden. What did your garden teach you last year that you're applying this year? probably something I learn each year, and that is to be proactive when it comes to weed control. Weeds are the biggest, biggest enemy I think that we have in our garden. It's too easy to see them and say, well, I'm going to get to that next week. It's one of those things that you can't put off. One of the things that we've applied this year that we certainly learned last year and and really the year before is that when we start seeing weeds that are coming up and developing within the flower beds, we go through and we jump on it and we do it as a group. We go once a week, at least through our display gardens, searching for those weeds. And we prefer to use in the flower beds, just hand pulling treatments as opposed to pre-emergence because we grow a lot of reseeding annuals. It's exceptionally important that we get out there and get ahead of them. Yeah. So it's a teamwork approach. Teamwork approach. Absolutely. What are your future plans for your garden? We have a wide open area right here. So everything that we've got is primarily sun oriented. And so we are trying to expand to the next section of our garden, which will feature tall overstory trees like oaks and hickories. We're going in and we're clearing out underneath it, getting rid of the privet and all the other invasive non-natives that we often see. Our next garden that we want to look at developing and working with that would include pathways will be a shade garden that will feature both native and non-native species of plants, shrubs, small understory trees, perennials, bulbs, and the like. What's your favorite plant this week? This week, we're getting all of our lacoris, all of what are referred to as either hurricane lily or spider lilies. We grew a variety this year called lacoris albiflora, and it's a white-flowered version of what we normally think of as a red flower. Spider lilies, as you remember, they come up this time of the year. There's no foliage. The bloom just shoots out of the ground. You've forgotten that they were even planted there from the bulb. They make the prettiest show. We're growing a white-flowered variety of them this year that is just really showing out. This week, it's really kicked into gear, and that is definitely my favorite. Every year I see those, I think, i got to get some of those. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they ask for nothing, thankfully. They are super, super tough plants. I didn't ask you who your biggest influencer was. I would definitely say both my mom and my dad, because both of them loved to garden. My dad, as a career, was the fruit specialist for each of the states of Texas, then Georgia, then Alabama. And his philosophy, when it came to gardening, he was all about the edible. When I was growing up and still today, draws so much enjoyment and is so passionate about the edible aspect of gardening that it's hard not to be inspired by someone like that. 
My mom, thankfully, likes the ornamental side as well. She liked to have cut flowers on the table at every meal if possible. And those cut flowers, she wants to come from the gardens. Both of those folks who, thankfully, I still garden with today, always been the biggest influences in my life. Do you have any final thoughts? We've been here doing this for 28 years. We've gardened for longer than that. But over the last three years, it has become so apparent to me how important gardening is to your peace of mind. I would encourage your listeners to take any time that they have to get out into that garden. So many people have shared with me that they've been able to maintain their sanity. They've been able to breathe and they've been able to actually relax once they enter that garden and kind of check everything else at the door. Jason, tell us how people may connect with you. We can be connected through our website. That's how most people find us. It's petalsfromthepast.com. And of course, there is a contact us button. That's the email address that goes directly to me. We also have a social media presence. We can connect with people through our Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube channel. This has been Episode 74, Antique Roses, Queen of the Garden with Jason Powell. Thank you, Jason. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.